Welcome to the Torah Guide, a podcast where we explore how the Hebrew Bible is all about Jesus and meditate on what it has to say to us. I'm your host, Aaron Dranoff. God made a promise to the Jewish people that was so important that the Torah actually ends by reminding us about this promise. So what is the promise? That God would raise up for Israel another prophet like Moses from among his brothers. So who is the prophet like Moses? We've been talking about Moses and this promise for the past couple weeks, and we've seen that God chose Moses to free his people from bondage and slavery and to reveal himself to the world. Moses and God had such an intimate relationship that God treated rejecting Moses like rejecting God himself. But Moses was a humble man who continually interceded for and prayed for his people, even the same people who rejected and mistreated him. And there's a promise in Deuteronomy 18, near the end of the Torah, for a new prophet like Moses that the people must listen to. If they don't listen to him, it will be considered not listening to God. This promise is so important to the story of the Hebrew Bible, the Torah actually ends by reminding us about it. But the future prophet like Moses is actually even more central to the Torah than even that. We've already seen the Torah is designed to cast a hope for the future. It's written in a way that's meant to inspire hope in God rescuing Israel after they break the covenant and are exiled to Babylon, which from the Torah's perspective is future. That hope is described as a new exodus with a new Moses. That's sort of the summary of what we've covered as far as Moses goes so far. But let me remind you that this episode is deep into a series called the Messianic Trajectory Series. And in the series, what we're after is trying to figure out what the authors of the Hebrew Bible thought they were writing about. And as we've moved forward, we're seeing them hone in on one central point. They're all writing about one main idea. And this prophet like Moses is a really big clue because not only is there a promise for a prophet like Moses who's associated with the restoration and new exodus that's coming in the future on the other side of the of exile but the torah actually ends the whole work by telling by reminding us about that promise to look for the prophet like Moses so if you're just listening to this episode and you haven't listened to any of the other episodes so far you'll be okay you can follow this episode and and just should do fine i know that isaiah 53 what we're talking about today is a really hotly debated topic that a lot of people are curious about. So I'm going to do my best to make sure that this episode is understandable if you haven't listened to any other episodes. That said, if you enjoy this episode, please go back and listen to it from the beginning. I think you'll get way more out of it. So let's let's go on. The promise for a new Moses was so central to the author's main point that not only did he end the entire work, the entire Torah, by stepping forward as a narrator and reminding us about the promise at the end of the Torah, but he also dropped the promise right in the center of another structurally significant technique in the Torah. So one of the primary design features of the Torah is poetry. Each section of the Torah follows the exact same pattern. There's a stretch of narrative that's capped off with a poem, and there's a short epilogue. So it goes story, and then ended with a poem, and a short epilogue. Story, poem, epilogue. And each of these poems all share the same themes. They all draw on the same imagery and all of them point to the future. Almost all of them actually say, this is about the last days. In the last podcast series we did called Introduction to the Torah, I made three episodes just devoted to these poems, 
And on our YouTube channel, we have three illustrated videos about the poetry. It's really important to the way the Torah communicates, so I recommend checking out those podcasts or videos if you haven't done that yet. But for right now, you should know is in the middle of these structurally significant poems, there's a group of three poems that combines all the other poems into one really inspiring hope about Israel's future in what it calls the later or last days. So just to clarify, there's poems at every ending section of story in the Torah. And in the middle of those, one of those poems is actually a group of three poems. It's in Numbers 23 and Numbers 24. And this happens after Israel had been saved from Egypt and had been wandering in the wilderness for almost 40 years at this point. As you read the poems in Numbers 23 and the poem on the next page in Numbers 24, you'll see that at first the poet describes the people of Israel. And then on the next page, he uses the very same imagery and descriptions, but focuses in on one individual within Israel who he singles out. And it's clear that the next poem shifts to the king of Israel in Numbers 24, because it says about Israel, and his king shall be higher than Agog, and his kingdom shall be exalted. And then for the rest of the poem, he talks about an individual, the king. And when he's talking about the king of Israel, he repeats everything that in the previous poem he just said Israel would do. But here we find out it's really Israel's king who is accomplishing those things on behalf of Israel. So in Numbers 23, there's a poem about what Israel is going to do. And then in Numbers 24, it's the same exact content. The same exact things that Israel was doing before, now it's actually the king of Israel who's doing it. Which makes sense, right? If a nation's king does something, that means the nation did it. Right? And, and we still talk like this today. If the president of the United States meets with the king of Jordan, we could say the United States and Jordan had a meeting today. So in Numbers 23, the poet spoke about the people of Israel and he speaks blessings over them. And one of the things he says is God brings them out of Egypt. He's speaking blessing over the people of Israel and he reminded them about their exodus. And keep in mind, this would remind them about the exodus, God bringing them out of Egypt because they're still in the wilderness. This is the same generation that God did bring out of Egypt. And then in the third poem, which is on the next page, he says the same thing about Israel's future king. He says, his kingdom shall be exalted. God brings him out of Egypt. God brings him out of Egypt. So now it's talking individual about the king. So in one of the most central communication tools in the author's arsenal, these major poems, the author drops into the central poem the one that's in the middle of all the other poems, that Israel's future king will be brought out of Egypt, just like Moses. So John Salehammer is a really great Hebrew Bible scholar that I recommend. Put it like this. In the Numbers passage, Israel's messianic future is viewed in terms of their glorious past, that is the Exodus. The compositional strategy within the Pentateuch itself has thus linked the Exodus with the messianic future. And where does he get that from? Because Israel's messianic future is talked about when Numbers 24 is talking about the future king of Israel. And he says it's viewed in terms of their glorious past, the Exodus, because in Numbers 23, it says the exact same thing, I will bring them out of Egypt. And so bringing them out of Egypt, the Exodus story is then applied to the future king of Israel's story, the Messiah's story. So I was reading that right now from a paper in the Moody Handbook of Messianic Prophecy by Rydelnik and Bloom, but I think the paper was originally taken from Salehammer's book, Old Testament Theology. Either way, 
I recommend both John Salehammer's Old Testament Theology and the Moody Handbook of Messianic Prophecy. They're both really helpful resources. So this poem is already structurally significant to the Torah. It's like a load-bearing pillar to the Torah's design, and it shows that Israel would need future salvation or rescue, and it would look like a new Moses during a new type of exodus. So Numbers 24 is a poetic version of the direct prophecy that appears later, the direct promise that God makes to raise up for Israel a new prophet like Moses, who the people will have to listen to or God will require it of them. Remember, this isn't the only time that God's saying that there's going to be a new exodus and a new Moses. God actually specifically says that in Deuteronomy 18 when he says, I will raise up for you a prophet like Moses. So Numbers 24 is a poetic way of painting this expectation for a new exodus. God will bring him out of Egypt and associates that with Israel's future king. Israel's king will be higher than Agog. His kingdom will be exalted. I will bring him out of Egypt. So I brought you back to Numbers to show you that this is really crucially important to the Torah's main point. Not only does he end the Torah on the note of expecting a future prophet like Moses, but the author actually includes the idea in the central poem, which is crucial to the entire meaning of the Torah. And on top of all of that, Numbers 24 reveals that this prophet like Moses is the same person as the king of Israel. In other words, the prophet like Moses is the Messiah. There's another passage later in the Hebrew Bible, and this is hotly debated between Christians and Jewish anti-missionaries. It's Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is a favorite prophecy for Christians to use to try and show that Jesus is in fact in the Old Testament. There's a myth that circulates in a lot of Christian circles that Isaiah 53 has been forbidden in Judaism. And that encourages many well-meaning Christians who think if they were to only read this passage, a Jewish person's mind would have to be changed. And the intuition there is right. This passage is about the Messiah. It is describing Jesus. And it's true that scripture is powerful and it works on people's hearts. So if you believe in Jesus, you should share this passage. You should point out to others and read it together. But know that many Jewish people are aware of this passage and Jewish thinkers have written on it at length. So that means you shouldn't just expect it to automatically change someone's mind. You should be prepared to kindly explain why this passage is about Jesus. You don't have to be an expert in what the traditional Jewish interpretations about this passage are or the different interpretations that they've been throughout history, but you should at least read it yourself over and over again and get familiar with it. It's actually a great passage to memorize if you haven't already memorized it. But in any case, read it and get familiar with it and read it in context. Isaiah 53 is one passage that actually starts in Isaiah 52.12 and goes through the end of Isaiah 53. So it's Isaiah 52.12 through Isaiah 53. And this passage, that one literary unit, is situated within the larger literary unit that goes from Isaiah chapter 40 through Isaiah 55. It's called the Servant Songs. The traditional Jewish interpretation today is that the servant in Isaiah 53 is not the Messiah. It's either the people of Israel, or there's another take that the servant is a righteous remnant within Israel. But this hasn't always been the case. There's actually been a number of different interpretations of who the servant of Isaiah 53 is in rabbinic literature. And a few important pieces of literature actually did recognize that it's about the Messiah. There's a Targum Yonatan that recognizes it's about the Messiah, and even the Talmud in Sanhedrin 98b interprets it as being about the Messiah. So there have been significant Jewish thinkers who didn't accept Jesus, but they have agreed that Isaiah 53 is about the Messiah. But today, the most common and traditional, the most common traditional Jewish interpretation 
is that it's about the people of Israel. And that understanding was popularized by Rashi, an incredibly influential commentator. But Rashi's understanding that Isaiah 53 is about Israel has some pretty major holes. It ignores a shift in focus from the people collectively to an individual. And it also misses a bigger pattern at work. The bigger patterns that it misses is, one, in a lot of ways, the servant songs, Isaiah 40 to 55, is actually modeled after Numbers 23 and 24, those poems we just talked about. And it also misses that the driving theme of the servant songs is Exodus imagery. It's all over the servant songs. In Isaiah 48 and 49, God is talking to Israel, who he calls his servant, and he promises them the same thing that he promised them in the Torah, that he'll free them from their exile in Babylon. And he talks about it as a new exodus. He says, Go out from Babylon, flee from the Chaldeans, declare with the sound of joyful shouting, proclaim this, send it out to the end of the earth. So he's talking about the return from the exile in Babylon. And then he reminds them about how he had already done this in the past. So then God continues to tell Isaiah what he should tell the people. Say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. They did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He made the water flow out of the rock for them. He split the rock and the water gushed out. It's a really vivid example of something that God actually did for the people of Israel in the Exodus when he was leading them through the deserts. So he's just straight up describing how God redeemed them in the Exodus. That's Isaiah 48, 20 to 22. Then Isaiah continues to write about Israel's future restoration and how it's a new exodus that will not only benefit Israel, but that when Israel is rescued again in this new exodus, salvation will reach to the ends of the earth. He says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the protected ones of Israel. I will also make you a light to the nations so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Isaiah 49, 6. So there's some back and forth in the focus of the passage. One specific Israelite servant and the people as a whole. First, he's talking to the servant, which is Jacob. And then he's talking to a servant who will restore Jacob. And it's not that he's no longer talking to Jacob. This is following the same pattern from Numbers 23 and number 24, which started by talking about Israel's new exodus and then shifted to the promise of Israel's future king, who would accomplish things on behalf of Israel. This is talking about this is talking to a nation by talking to the nation's king and shifting focus from talking to the nation as a whole and then zooming in and, and talking to the king himself. So it's the same thing here in Isaiah. He's talked to Israel, aka Jacob, and then he shifts to an individual from Jacob who will restore Jacob. Right? He says first he's talking to Jacob and he says, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. They did not thirst when he led them to the desert. And he specifically references something that he did for the people of Israel, Jacob. And then he zooms in on, on a specific servant within Israel. So not the servant Jacob anymore, but the servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the protected ones of Israel. And right before Isaiah shifts to this one distinguished among his brothers, the one that he zooms in on among the collective people, he again reminds us about the Exodus. And again, it should remind us about the same thing that Numbers 23 and Numbers 24 does. God brings them out of Egypt. God brings the exalted king out of Egypt. So he equates Israel's captivity in Egypt to Israel's exile in Assyria and Babylon. Isaiah does. For this is what the Lord God says. My people went down to Egypt first to reside there. Then 
the Assyrian oppressed them without reason. So he's equating what happened in Egypt to what the Assyrians did. And then he follows it up with, and now what do I have here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people have been taken away without reason. That last line, he's talking about Babylon. So first, my people went down to Egypt first to reside there. Then the Assyrian oppressed them without reason. And now what do I have here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people have been taken without reason. So in Isaiah's servant songs, just like in the poetry of Numbers 23 and 24, first the subject of the poem is Israel as a whole. And then at the climax and some other places here and there, Israel's new Moses is the one with the attention turned on him. Why does the author start by talking about Israel and then zoom in on the Messiah instead of just talking about the Messiah the whole time? Well, remember that God promised to raise up the new Moses from among his brothers or his countrymen. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. Deuteronomy 18.18 The authors in Numbers and in Isaiah are literally showing that this is the new Moses raised up from among his brothers by talking to the collective and then talking to the one distinguished among the collective. In both passages, they start off with the people of Israel and then highlight the new Moses raised up from among the collective. So some of the chapters leading up to Isaiah 52 and 53 really are about Israel. The traditional Jewish interpretation gets that right. It does reference the servant Jacob, and he is actually talking to the people of Israel. Just like the poem that Isaiah was inspired by really does direct his attention to Israel, Numbers 23. And then at the climax in Isaiah 52 and 53, the attention shifts to one distinguished from the rest of Israel like a new Moses, just like Numbers 24 shifted the attention to Israel's future king and future Moses. So just to be sure, let's notice how the shift itself actually happens. In the beginning of Isaiah 52, Isaiah addresses the people of Jerusalem, so the people, and he calls them you. He says, clothe yourself with your beautiful garments, Jerusalem, the holy city, for the uncircumcised and the unclean will no longer come into you. And he tells them, depart, depart, go out from there. Do not touch what is unclean. Go out from the midst of her. Purify yourselves you who carry the vessels of the Lord, but you will not go out in a hurry. So he's talking to the people of Israel. He's telling them, you, Jerusalem, you who carry the vessels of the Lord. So this is more than one person. This is the collective. And then he starts telling his people about someone specific. So he's talking to that same group of people, the you, Jerusalem, the people. In verse 13, he says, behold, and again, he's talking to the people. So behold, my people, behold, my servant will prosper. He Notice there's not you anymore. He's talking to you about he. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were appalled at you. So his appearance was marred beyond that of a man and his form beyond the sons of mankind. So God through Isaiah is talking to the people of Israel and he's been promising them to save them from exile. He's been comparing their exile to the exodus in Egypt which remember the Torah has already done in Numbers when it also promised a new Moses. So then here Isaiah follows the same pattern and God starts telling the people of Israel about someone specific. And it can't be the people of Israel because God actually compares this person to the people of Israel. Just as many were appalled at you, so his appearance was marred. And actually his appearance was marred beyond that of a man and his form was marred beyond the sons of mankind. So addressing Israel, once they get sent into exile and he's saying, you know how you guys were brutalized? And how everyone attacked you, it's the same with my servant. And he's actually worse off, if you can imagine that. And that's obviously my paraphrase. 
But Isaiah 53 is clearly about someone distinguished from among Israel and not the people of Israel as a whole. So hopefully you can already see that the servant songs in Isaiah are drawing from and are actually modeled after the poems and numbers. But there's so much more than, than that that tells us Isaiah has the prophet like Moses in mind. One of the defining characteristics of who Moses was is that he was humble. If you remember, when Miriam and Aaron questioned Moses' authority, Moses stayed silent. He didn't answer them. And when Moses stays silent when his brother and sister question him, the narrator turns to you and says, Moses was more humble than anyone on the face of the earth. You can find that in Numbers 12. So it's just like that here with this new Moses. Just like Moses was more humble than anyone on the face of the earth because he didn't speak back when Miriam and Aaron were questioning his authority, it's the same with the new Moses and Isaiah. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living for the wrongdoing of my people, to whom the blow was due? As Isaiah 53, 7 and 8. The poem describes this person as someone who was oppressed, afflicted, rejected, and abandoned. Those are the same problems that Moses encountered, but here with this new Moses, they're heightened. And just like Moses was called humble for his silence, so here this servant is like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sacrifice, and he humbly keeps his mouth silent. And Isaiah tells us that he was killed, cut off from the land of the living, for the wrongdoing of my people. So who are Isaiah's people? People of Israel. This servant dies for the people, like a sacrificial lamb, for the people who deserve it, right? He says, for the wrongdoing of my people to whom the blow was due. The servant didn't didn't deserve this. The people of Israel did. And not just the people of Israel, but remember in this context, he said already, it's too small a thing that you will only raise up the people of Israel, the tribes of Jacob, but you will also be a light to the nation so my salvation will reach to the ends of the earth. So this isn't just because of what Israel did, although it is because of what Israel did. It's also because of what humanity has done. So Israel isn't being talked about as worse than humanity. Israel is just on par with humanity. Everybody deserves this, except for this servant who didn't deserve it, yet he experiences it. And just like Moses who interceded for his sister when when she and and his brother questioned his authority, he didn't want her to be held responsible for what she did. So God leaves their presence when Aaron and Miriam reject Moses, and Miriam is left like a dead person. She has leprosy, and it says she's like dead. And so Moses prays for her and intercedes for her. And we see the same behavior with this servant in Isaiah. This servant, like Moses, is actually called the righteous one. And he bears the wrongdoings of the many. And he even interceded for those people whose wrongdoings he bore. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, for he will bear their wrongdoings. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the plunder with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was counted with the wrongdoers. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the wrongdoers. So by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, he will bear their wrongdoings. And what does he do? He intercedes for the wrongdoers. The servant, the righteous one, bears their wrongdoings, pours out his life to death, and then intercedes for those same people. So remember when we talked about the new covenant a couple episodes ago, 
We saw that Isaiah viewed the new covenant so closely linked to the Messiah that he actually called the Messiah the covenant. What he said was, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also uphold you by the hand and watch over you. And I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations. That's Isaiah 42, 6 in the same series of servant songs. So just as Moses freed Israel from bondage and knew God on an especially open level and gave the people of Israel the Sinai covenant, the new Moses, the new prophet like Moses, would lead Israel out of a spiritual bondage. He would know God on an especially open level and he would be the new covenant. Remember Isaiah said, I'll appoint you as a covenant to the people. So the birth of the nation of Israel was a divine act. God himself brought Israel out of bondage in Egypt. And through Moses, he gave them a law code to govern them by. And the Torah itself looks forward to another divine rescue, a new Moses who would lead the people through a new exodus. And this new prophet like Moses would perform signs and wonders and be marked by his close relationship with God. The prophets of the Hebrew Bible, specifically Isaiah, looked back on the promise for a new prophet like Moses and saw him as the initiator of the new covenant that according to Isaiah, will be filled with the Spirit of God. And according to Jeremiah, the new covenant wasn't just for Israel, but for all mankind and even all creation. You can read about that in Jeremiah 31. And according to Ezekiel, who wrote about the new covenant as well, during this time, the new covenant, God would fill his people with his own spirit so that they'll be able to keep this new covenant. And writing about the new Moses, Isaiah describes someone whose life is marked by suffering. He describes a man who's rejected by his people, the very people who he came to save. Isaiah describes the new Moses as a humble man who came to die in place of his people to intercede for them so that what they did would not be held against them. Isaiah 53, 3-12 He was despised and abandoned by men, a man of great pain and familiar with sickness. And like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we had no regard for him. However, it was our sicknesses that he himself bore, and our pains that he carried. Yet we ourselves assumed that he had been afflicted, struck down by God, and humiliated. But he was pierced for our offenses. He was crushed for our wrongdoings. The punishment for our well-being was laid upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, But the Lord has caused the wrongdoing of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living for the wrongdoing of my people, to whom the blow was due? And his grave was assigned with wicked men. Yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord desired to crush him, causing him grief. If he renders himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, for he will bear their wrongdoings. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, 
and he will divide the plunder with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death, and was counted with the wrongdoers. Yet he himself bore the sin of many, and interceded for the wrongdoers. Isaiah 53, 3-12 Let's meditate on scripture together. I'm going to ask you a few questions. Take some time to think about each question, and you can pause if you need some extra time to think or to pray. Jesus is the Holy One. He's never sinned, but he wasn't recognized. He was despised and rejected. He endured this rejection with humility, never speaking out, but interceding for the wrongdoers. What comes to mind as you think about how Jesus interceded for the same wrongdoers who rejected him? Next, all of our wrongdoing has been laid on Jesus. He bore all of our sins so that by his knowledge we could be forgiven. Do you know Jesus? Do you trust that what he did for you is truly enough? Last question. Because Jesus, the righteous one, poured out his life for us, God the Father has prolonged his days. He raised him from the grave, and Jesus lives and reigns as king. Have you submitted to King Jesus? Do you trust him as Lord of your life? Pray with me. Jesus, you came as a humble servant like Moses, and you weren't recognized but you willingly bore our sins so that we can be healed. Jesus, thank you for this amazing humility and for pouring out everything for us, even your life. We recognize you and we trust you. We believe in you, Jesus. Sprinkle us with your blood so that we'll be made purified and made right. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Torah Guide Podcast. If you want to meditate on this lesson some more, check out the video and reading plan that go along with it, either at thetorahguide.com or on Instagram and Facebook. The Torah Guide is a totally crowdfunded nonprofit that makes all sorts of resources to help you read the Hebrew Bible and discover Jesus, including this podcast, animated videos, devotionals, reading plans, and more. And we're able to do it because of generous people like you. So if you want to be a part of helping people discover how the Hebrew Bible points to Jesus, you can sign up to become a monthly supporter or make a one-time gift at thetorahguide.com slash give.